Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be your children. You are our Heavenly Father. Christ is our brother and we are adopted into this wonderful family. None of us deserve it, but you have reached down into our lives and we give you thanks. And as your children, Lord, uh, we love for you to speak to us through your word. May your spirit make these words come alive. May Jesus be more real to us as we dwell in your scriptures through Jesus' name. Amen. So we're journeying through the Gospel of Mark and we're spending time in Mark chapter 10. Henry Nguyen, you may have heard of him, author, probably through his books. Henry Nguyen was at the top of his game. He was born in a Catholic family and became a Catholic priest. But he took the academic pathway and was very successful and very influential in a number of fields. He became professor at a number of universities, Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard. He was respected by those within the Catholic and the Protestant churches and a best-selling author. His university classes, students were eager to sign up. However, something was nagging at Henry. Then came an opportunity to move away from his position of influence to a nowhere position, a position of obscurity. What was he to do? He could certainly do a lot for the kingdom of God where he was. Why should he move to this nowhere place? But as he was seeking God's will, he felt a clearer and clearer nudge. He felt the Holy Spirit saying, can you drink this cup? Can you drink this cup of obscurity and servanthood? It became clear that he was to follow not the upward path of academic success and best-selling authorship, but the downward path, which meant for him the path of the cross. So he left his life of influence and took a room in a community house that cared for the mentally and physically disabled. Now he didn't go to head up that ministry, he went as a caregiver. So his role every day was to help dress and feed and clean the disabled members of the community. It's where he spent the rest of his working life. Yes, he would still write books and he spoke at the odd conference, but most of his time he was a caregiver in this home for disabled. He writes, The first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was their liking or disliking of me had absolutely nothing to do with all the many useful things I'd done in the past. Since no one could read, my books did not impress anyone. Since none of them had been to school, my 20 years at very prestigious Ivy League universities meant absolutely nothing. My church experience proved even less valuable. Not being able to use any of my skills that proved practical in the past was a real source of anxiety. In a way, it seemed as though I was starting my life all over again. What do you think? Should he have continued in that university, at Harvard University, and influenced those young men and women for Christ, those young men and women who would have gone on to be leaders in their community, leaders in politics, in an industry, maybe leaders in the whole global community? Should he stayed there for another 20 years or so and influenced those people instead of going into obscurity? In fact, many people would say he wasted his life. He had influence and power, power to make a difference and in the world's view, he threw it all away. Power. Let's consider power for a moment. What a prize it is in the world's eye. Power to attract others. Power to influence others. Power 
over others, but also power to feed our pride and to elbow our way to number one. Power lures, mesmerizes, captivates. Henry Kissinger called it the great aphrodisiac. We find power hypnotic, addictive, and all-consuming. And Jesus had power, miraculous power, wonderful power. In fact, many people were attracted to him because he was a person powerful in word and deed. And they all wanted a piece of him. And Jesus knew this. And he was happy when the crowds came to him, even though it was with this misguided understanding of power, because he was always teaching them, and especially his disciples, to look past the miracles, look past the power, and to see where they pointed, or to whom they pointed. And this morning we're going to see Jesus confronting his disciples with their misconceptions of power and turning it all on its head. And so to do this, we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those following were afraid. Jesus' ministry is drawing to a close, and in obedience to his heavenly Father, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. Now it says here in the verse 32 that many were scared. Why would they be scared? Well, opposition to Jesus was growing. The religious leaders made it no secret that they were after his death. And Jesus made it clear to all of his followers, the crowds, that he was going to Jerusalem and to trouble. And so many were scared. But on top of this, the 12 disciples, they were astonished. Why would they be astonished? Well, probably because twice already Jesus had said that he was going to be killed and raised from the dead. And now he confirms that it's going to happen in Jerusalem and he's walking into a trap. Why would Jesus walk into a trap if he was going to be the Messiah and throw the Romans out of Israel? Pick this up here in the second part of verse 32. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what he was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, flog him, kill him, and three days later he will rise. And you know, even though this is the third time, the disciples have no idea what Jesus is talking about. They haven't a clue, despite Jesus' very clear instructions or information about what's going to happen to him. And we can see how little they understand, because as they travel on the road, a small delegation approaches Jesus on the sly, a party of two. We read this in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Bit of a loaded question, isn't it? Now, who are James and John? You know, well, obviously they're two of the twelve disciples. They were fishermen before Jesus called them, and they were characters. So much so that Jesus gave the two brothers a nickname. Do you know what the nickname was? Yeah, Sons of Thunder. I wonder why Jesus called them Sons of Thunder. Well, maybe there's a clue in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. Again, they're on the road, the disciples and Jesus. They go to a Samaritan village to ask for hospitality, and they receive none. So what do James and John do? They come to Jesus and they say, Lord, 
Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus' nickname was very appropriate, wasn't it? They wanted to call thunder and lightning and fire on these naughty Samaritans, sons of thunder. Jesus scolds them and they move on their way to the next village. So back in Mark 10, these two same brothers, these sons of thunder, come with a request. And do you notice how they soften Jesus up? Teacher, they say, we want you to do whatever we ask. Have you ever had someone who opened a conversation with something like this? If you're a parent, Dad, can you do us a favour? Parents on dangerous ground if they answer yes before asking what the favour is. Jesus knows this too. So in verse 36, he says, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And then they reply, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. What an interesting question, isn't it? Now we might not see this first, but at the, this is a power grab. This is the disciples, James and John, doing the calculation, realising if we get in quick, we can be the second and third most powerful people in the kingdom that Jesus is about to inaugurate. If we think back to Joseph in Genesis, Joseph was the right-hand man of Pharaoh. He had the signet ring of Pharaoh, which meant he could sign off legal documents. And Joseph basically ran the country of Egypt as the right-hand man of the Pharaoh. And that's what James and John are asking for. They want to be the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his coming kingdom. And this reflects their understanding of what they thought the kingdom of God was. The kingdom of God would be the Messiah coming down and throwing out the Roman occupiers and sending up a Jewish kingdom that would rule over all the earth. And they wanted the best seats in the house. They wanted to be on the right and left of Jesus. And we should be amazed about how much James and John's are not understanding at all Jesus' teaching. For if you've got your Bibles with you and turn back a page to Mark 9.33, something that uh, Ryan preached on a few weeks ago, we see how much they missed the boat. We see how much they have not understood Jesus' teaching. Because in Mark 9.33, they just arrived home from some travels, and Jesus says this, What were you arguing about on the road? But the disciples kept quiet, because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus set them straight then. But a few days, a few weeks later, they hadn't learnt a thing. There's clearly an ongoing quest amongst the disciples to manoeuvre. Who's the best? I'm the best. You're second. No, you're last. Influence and power, they were trying to arm wrestle each other over. Now back then, Jesus set them straight. But what's Jesus going to say now when they again try and grasp power? Back to Mark 10, and this time from verse 38. Remember, they've asked to sit on the right and the left of Jesus. And so he replies, You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? Yes, we can, they answered. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't answer their initial question directly. He answers with another question. 
And in this, we take a step back and think of ourselves. In this, we should be greatly encouraged because James and John came to Jesus with a request that was full of mixed motives. No doubt they wanted to do wonderful things for Jesus and serve him, but they were also grasping power, these sons of thunder. Mixed motives at their best. And yet Jesus replies with a sense of gentleness and patience to these two disciples who have no idea what they're asking. And we can take encouragement that God does the same for us. We are encouraged to come to God in prayer. And some of our requests are full of mixed motives, far from pure. And yet God treats each one of our prayers with respect and gentleness and patience, just like he did James and John. So there's encouragement for us to pray, even if our prayers are muddled, even if we're not sure whether we're praying for our own interests or for the interests of others. However, don't be surprised when God challenges us, just like Jesus is challenging James and John here. Because when they said, we can drink from the cup, Jesus knew they had no idea what they were signing up for. It's a little bit like if a child, if you're a parent, a child may have come to you at some stage and said, can we have a puppy, Dad? I wonder if any one of your children have said that to you. And you say, will you walk the puppy every day? And they say, yes, we will. And as a parent, you know they have no idea. It's probably you that's going to be walking the puppy every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you say, will you clean up after the puppy? And they say, yes, we will. And you know they have no idea what that means. But they're in the moment. And they're genuine and they're sincere and in their ability to cope, they mean it. Now, of course, you may or may not get a puppy or you may wait till they leave home. <laughs> As an aside, we were out yesterday and uh, there was a couple with a lovely wee child and Tobin never dropped sticks that are thrown in the lake to us, but this little girl was throwing sticks and he would come and drop the stick at this little girl's feet. I don't know what she was doing. But I did overhear my lovely daughter say, you know, mum and dad would never give us a dog when we were at home. <laughs> but they said, oh, was it an empty nest syndrome? And Sarah said yes, and she was 100% correct. But getting back to these disciples, they were like a child wanting a puppy, except in a very adult way. They were sincere and in the moment, but had no idea what they were asking for. Imagine if Jesus had. Imagine the chaos that they would have, they would have, these sons, sons of thunder, if they were sitting at the left and the right hand of God. And so Jesus continues gently but firmly to correct their misunderstandings and to answer their question. Can we sit at the right and left hand of God? No, you can't. Can you drink from the cup? Yes, we can. Verse 39 continues. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. So Jesus does grant their request, their request to drink from the cup, but not their request to sit on the left and the right. Before we continue with uh, how this progresses through Mark 10, what of James and John? Let's fast forward a little bit and see how did they drink from the cup? What did that mean for them? They probably meant that Jesus was talking at about a big celebratory feast where he was king, 
and all the nations of the earth were displayed and James was on the right and John was on the left and they were drinking the cup of victory and the cup of celebration. But that's not what Jesus was talking about, was he? Jesus was talking about the cup of suffering. Can you drink from this cup? James said yes. And this is how this played out for James. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, just a few months after this conversation, we read this, Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. James, can you drink from this cup? Yes, I can, Lord. I can drink from the cup. And so James gave his life for Jesus. What about his brother John? Well, John finished his life very different from the other 11 disciples. All the other 11 disciples were martyred, starting with his brother James, until only John was left. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. John, as an old man, writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that arouse in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, he's a companion in the suffering of other Christians, patient endurance. So for John, drinking the cup meant ending his life as an old man in exile and in prison. Jesus said to John, can you drink from this cup? And John said, yes, I can. And he did. But what about the story as it unfolds in chapter 10 of Mark? Well, what are the other 10 disciples? What do they think about this? Pick this up in verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Indignant with James and John. Probably because they hadn't thought of it first. They were probably disappointed because they thought, blast, we should have gone on and made this request. Because they also had a worldly idea of what leadership and power was all about. They knew power grasped when they saw it. They knew manipulation when they saw it. And they were disappointed that James and John got ahead of them. And so before the disciples end up with having a fight, maybe even come into fisticuffs over this, Jesus uses the opportunity to teach all 12 and show them what the power in the kingdom of heaven really looks like. So we pick this up in verse 42. This is Jesus taking a side. He defines what worldly power is and how the Gentiles, the Romans, Romans are lording it over them. And then he describes what power is like in the kingdom of God. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Notice that last verse. The Son of Man did not come to be served, to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And see how Jesus turns the worldly concept of power upon its head. Kingdom leadership is not about grasping. It's not about striving and pushing people down as you climb up the ladder. It's all about, it's all about serving. The first will be last. It's not about sitting at the head of the table at the right and the left of the host that's sitting at the bottom of the table 
It's not ascending to the top, but it's descending to the bottom, to the cross. And this is the road that Jesus expects each one of us to walk. And do you know, eventually the disciples get it. It's not until after the resurrection, but after the resurrection we see in their words and their action servant leadership, striving to put others first for the glory of Christ. Many years later, again, John as an older man writes in 1 John 3.16. Now many of us know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What about 1 John 3.16? It's a wonderful verse and it's very similar. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see how John got it as an old man? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I am laying down my life for you. The first shall be last. Those at the head of the table are are nowhere near as important as those at the foot of the table. They get it. John, who had been arguing with the other disciples about who was the greatest and jostling for power, now puts Jesus' words into practice. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Paul got it and was putting it into practice. And this is what Jesus calls us to do in our walk with him. It's the way of the servant, the way of the cross. And that's a challenge, it's not easy. We are surrounded by models, whether in the business or in the military situation, education, public service. We're surrounded by people whose idea of power is to grasp and struggle and to get to the top. Now, God does call some Christians to take that road where they can influence people. But even there, there is the opportunity to, at the highest echelons of power to exhibit servant leadership. And we see that, actually. We catch glimpses now and again of politicians that instead of grasping for power, they just give of themselves. And it's rare and it's refreshing and it's wonderful. But that's the life that Jesus has called each one of us to do. So let me finish with a story, a story to remind us how pointless this grasping for power really is. John Ortberg, a minister, author, tells a story about when he was a young lad. He said, when I was a boy, my grandmother was an incredible Monopoly player. When the two of us played, she completely wiped me out. By the end of the game, she owned everything. Park Lane, Mayfair, just, she had it all. And at the end of the game, she would smile at me and say, John, someday you're going to learn how to play the game. Now one summer, a new family moved in next door and that kid was my age and he loved Monopoly and he was very good. So over the summer, every day, we would play Monopoly and I got really, really good. And I was excited because I knew my grandmother was coming to stay at the end of summer. And when she arrived, I ran into the house and gave her a big hug and said, Grandma, do you want to play Monopoly? Well, I'll never forget how her eyes lit up. And so I set the board out very carefully and we played. But this time, I wiped her out. I owned everything. My smile was from ear to ear. It was the greatest day of my life. This time at the end of the game, my grandmother smiled and said, John, now you know how to play the game. But let me teach you a lesson about life. It all goes back into the box. 
I said, what do you mean, Grandma? I've won. Yes, but everything goes back into the box. Everything you've accumulated, it all goes back into the box. You see, no matter how we push and shove and grab and grasp for power, whether it be money or recognition, prestige and possessions, and it doesn't have to be the people that own the most money and the, you know, the big players in the world, even in our little worlds, you know that we jostle for power, authority and influence. Yet when life's over, everything goes back in the box. And then what are we left with? What are we left with? For Henry Nguyen, what was he left with? He was left with a wonderful relationship with the living God. A sense where he had drunk the cup with Jesus. He had a wonderful relationship with the handicapped people where all that sacrifice went right over their head. (laughs) He was just there and he was their friend and that was good enough for them. In the world's eye, he had given up everything, prestige and recognition to serve the forgotten and the ignored. He followed Jesus by being a servant to the unloved and the unlovely and he was deeply, deeply rewarded. So what about you? What will you be left with when everything gets put back in the box? When all our pushing and striving is over, when our life's work is done and it is laid aside, where will you stand with our Heavenly Father? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for those disciples, those 12 disciples, those thick-headed, slow-learning disciples, because it gives the rest of us... (laughs) a sense that we have a chance because we so relate to their muddled thinking at times. But yet you reach down into their lives and you reach down into our lives and you are moulding us to be more like Jesus. May the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that is within us bubble up and spill out and transform our lives and our, our words and our deeds so that we are following Jesus just like, just like James did after the resurrection and just like John did after the resurrection. Lord, we don't really know what we're asking, but we come before you, Jesus, and say we trust you and we will drink the cup. We can only do this if your Holy Spirit is with us and guides us and strengthens us. And so, by Jesus' name, we pray for a fresh and filling of your Holy Spirit now through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.